This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. One out of seven children will lose a parent before they're 20 years old. That's a very sobering statistic, and it's also one that makes us realize how much we need to be prepared. But professionals, parents, friends, caregivers, and even those in the local community are kind of at a loss for when to deal with and how to deal with a grieving child. Talking to adults about death and grief is difficult, and it's all the more challenging to talk to children and teens. The stakes are high. Grieving children are at high risk for substance abuse and promiscuity, depression, isolation, and even suicide. Supporting grieving children really requires intentionality and open communication and patience, a lot of patience. Rather than avoiding all conversations on death or pretending like it never happened, it's important to normalize grief and offer support. And that's something that requires us to be in tune with the kids, and the only way to do that is through having dialogue with them and talking with them about questions of how and why. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an expert on talking to children about grief. And in his opinion, there are two really important things. The first one is listening to the children, not trying to impose something on them, but listening to what's going on with them and trying to take your cues from them. And the second thing is honesty. You absolutely have to be honest when answering their questions and when presenting information. We'll dig deeper right after this. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Joseph Primo, who's the author of What Do We Tell the Children? Talking to Kids About Death and Dying. Joseph, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. You know, this is one of these topics that I don't think I really wanted to talk about. <laughs> I'm sure that that's something that you came across. But I figured, well, this is one, also one of these things that probably builds character by doing things that I don't really want to do and but are really important to do anyway. How did you happen to get interested in this particular topic? Well, I used to be an interfaith hospice chaplain, and I witnessed a lot of young people die. And even during their dying process, when their kids are, were gathering around their bedside, I noticed how hard it was for them to have open conversations about what was happening to them, how their body was deteriorating. And I was brought in to provide support in that hospice setting. And while I was able to be helpful to those children, and to the parents during that dying process, um, I was also there when the parents died and essentially led the families out the front door knowing that there was no real support for them out in the world. Um, so I got involved um, moving from the hospice side of things to the children's bereavement, trying to provide kids with the support they need for as, as long as they need it, because ultimately it is a lifelong journey and I think what we can do by providing that sort of support during the dying process 
and thereafter is help children develop coping skills that are going to serve them for the rest of their lives and really help them make healthy decisions at a time when things can seem and feel really uncertain and um, quite chaotic and disruptive. And I want you to go back to something that you said there. You said there's not a lot of support for them in the outside world. I, I'm curious by what you mean by support, because it seems like, especially when a parent dies, the children are they're taken in by neighbors, they're taken in by family, that there's a, a lot of, of support. Are you talking about a different kind of support, or am I just, am I missing something? Well, no, I, I, think, I think you're seeing what we see in communities across America, where a young parent dies, um, whether it be from cancer or whether it be something tragic, and the school system responds, neighbors show up, um, perhaps the town clergy, they're present, um, but that support oftentimes it happens immediately. It happens with lasagnas and people showing up and filling churches. But then the person is is buried or gone, and uh, the the support that a kid need for many years after that loss it quickly fizzles. Um, for the kids that I work with on a daily basis, that support sometimes they'll experience it for a month or or two from from family members, but. Um, it quickly starts to shift and change because uh, I think as Americans we're not used to how long grief just settles in. It, you know, it permeates throughout a throughout a child's life, and I, I think we have this unwritten code about how long it's supposed to last. And uh, I, I think most Americans start wanting people to get back to their normal routine in a month to certainly six months later, and uh, and by a year. Most people want to see the bereaved going back to their daily life and, and acting like they normally uh, used to behave. So the sort of support I'm talking about is that <clears throat> consistent support where kids are able to retell their story, able to feel all of their feelings and think all of their thoughts throughout multiple developmental stages as they're, as they're growing older and they're understanding that grief differently, differently throughout, um, throughout their childhood and their teenage years. As a society, we don't do a good job with providing that sort of support. Mm -hmm. We don't see that in school systems, and, and frankly, a lot of uh, guidance counselors and counselors in general aren't trained to provide that sort of support. Right. Uh, now, how long is a reasonable time? And I know that it's going to be different for everybody and probably will depend very much on the circumstances of the death and the ages of the children and, I guess, the ages of the, the person who died as well. But how do you assess from the outside I mean, you know, you said that the, there's sort of this arbitrary six months should be getting pretty much back to normal by a year. You should be, you should have moved on. Some people it, may. It, it's very hard. I think, I think, uh, because it, grief is such an individualized experience, the question becomes about our expectations and how willing we are not to assume how long it's going to take for a child or for a teen, and to be able to listen to them uh, and. and and really pay attention to what their needs might be. So the way that I assess it and try to understand and provide support or you know, support a parent who's not sure what's going on with their child, it, for me it, it boils down to a question of is that child making healthy decisions that aren't leading to detrimental effects? So whether that be uh, grasping with different difficult feelings, whether that is um, trying to understand how this big and bad thing happened, the, the way in which in which a, a child might process that or a teen could could be a bit of rebellion. Um, it, it, it could be 
wanting to be left alone and uh, not bothered. And and because all of all of these responses are normal responses, responses oftentimes to an abnormal event, I think um, the most important thing we can ask ourselves when trying to figure out how is this grief unfolding and how long might we see it for is is the child making healthy decisions that um, that are setting them towards a path that's going to get them to a better place down the road. Where do you begin this whole process of educating people about what to look for and how do you assess what's going on? I mean, from, from the outside, you, you were obviously trained as, an, as a chaplain, uh, interfaith chaplain, and doing a lot of so you know you've got some training in this. How do, how do the rest of us assess what to do and what the signs are when somebody's ready or somebody's not ready? I think it's it's a real challenge because I think a lot of adults want we don't I don't think we want to pretend to be psychoanalysts or something that we're not. Um, so for me, it's it's stepping a few steps back and making sure that we have reasonable expectations about what grief looks like and what it doesn't look like. So to remember that it's not some sort of pathology. That sometimes uh, nothing is is actually broken. That it, it's not our as adults. It's not our jobs to fix it or necessarily to even take the pain away. And that's and that can be a hard and jolting thing for an adult to hear. But if if we if we take that step back, and we all can agree that grief serves a purpose. That is that as humans we have always experienced grief and we always will experience grief. That is part of the human condition. And if it's this universal experience we're all having, and you know, let's take the next leap and assume that perhaps it's it's serving a purpose, and that purpose can be developing coping skills, helping us to find a way forward. To as kids develop an understanding of what hopefulness means. Um, so, it, if we want to be in a supportive role, I I think it first starts with shifting our expectations and uh, some of the frameworks we have as adults and as a society about what it means um, to listen. Because ultimately, for kids, if you're, if you're uh, a school teacher or an administrator, if you're a mom or dad, um, if you're just a caring neighbor, for kids, it's about creating a safe space where they know you're not going to pressure them to talk about it, where you're, you're not going to, to probe and to push them to places that might be big or scary. We know, I think, as adults, that talking about these life-changing events can be scary and difficult in our in our adult minds. And I think it's important that we take a moment to uh, imagine what it's like for a kid who has just had a really important person plucked out of their lives, and how they're trying to understand what that means and how these things happen. And and oftentimes that 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 feeling process and that thought process comes with some really big, scary feelings, and we need to follow their lead and allow them to take us to that place, to feel ready to share those things with us. So so there's I a difference, it sounds like, Joseph. There's a difference between, I guess, comforting and helping somebody process it. I mean, they, they seem to be, one of them is a little bit more passive, one's a little bit more active. I think so, yeah. I guess you could say that you know, the comforting is, is showing up and, and giving hugs and letting somebody know you care about them and, and telling stories and, right. and, and being consistent. 
And then there's that other role that's being more of a facilitator, that consistent presence that's 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 there for a child and and uh, welcomes um, stories and also normalcy. Because I, I think one thing that's hard for some adults is that they, they expect a child to fall apart at the seams or, or for their grief to look like an adult's grief because you've just told them that their mom died. So you're expecting a particular sort of reaction. But, but that child may only hear it part and more so and and then want to figure out, okay, well, do I still get to go to ballet or soccer practice? Right, Joseph, I got. let me stop you there, and we'll, we'll pick yeah. that up in just a second. I'm speaking with Joseph Primo, who's the author of What Do We Tell the Children? Talking to Kids About Death and Dying, and we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll pick right back up there talking about expectations. I'm Armin Braun, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Joseph Primo, who's the author of What Do We Tell the Children? Talking to Kids About Death and Dying. And you were just talking about something really interesting about the expectations that adults have that may not be really correct. I mean, that they're, they're expecting something from a child that might not even be reasonable to expect from an adult. Yeah, and, 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 and children... Um very much want to feel normal and not want to feel uh, feel like they're being treated differently. And that's and, and and being somebody who works with kids on a daily basis, I I really struggle with that. And I imagine what it's like for adults who um, aren't used to working with grieving kids regularly. Maybe there's a kid in their classroom, in their neighborhood, um, uh, or even in their extended family. Because at the same at one moment, you want to acknowledge this big monumental thing that's happened in their lives. But then at the same time, uh, you don't want to show too much favoritism or, or treat them too much differently because they don't want to be treated differently. So they want, it, they want their feelings acknowledged, uh, yet they don't want to be called out in class and be known as the kid in the, in the classroom without the mom or their dad. They, they want to feel like they're fitting in with their peers. And, right. and you can see that in the day-to-day lives of any child. Sure. They, that, you know, peer pressure is a real thing for them, and they don't want to feel different from anybody else around them. So as an adult, how do you straddle the line or how do you find the common ground, I guess, between these two things that you've been talking about? So there's the not wanting to ha- making the kids feel that you're not going to pressure them into saying anything or doing anything or even uh, dealing with it at all, as opposed to the kids who probably want to talk about it, but they don't want to bother anybody with it. And, and then there's some, sometimes the adults don't want to address it because they're afraid that the child will react badly or something or right. will bring up all these traumatic things. So how do you, how do you find the, the right mix in there of when to back off and when to maybe push a little? Sure. I, I think it requires a real sense of intentionality and self-awareness to remember that, um, that it's not about us, that it's about um, the kids. Because sometimes our feelings can can get hurt. Um, not that, that the child is intentionally trying to hurt our feelings, but how they may respond to us. Because again, this idea that those feelings could be big um, or scary. So I think first and foremost, not making assumptions, and then having the self awareness to know that I might not actually be the best support system for my child. That my child may want to protect me. That. Um, the thought of losing me may be big or scary. So it, it may be seeking out other support systems within my community, a place like 
good grief, where I'm the CEO. You know, we, we provide support to kids from hundreds of different towns throughout New Jersey. Um, you know, a lot of our kids don't feel as safe with their surviving parent uh, as they do with other grieving kids within one of my centers because it's just not as threatening. They can leave it behind and not have it brought up at school. And so, uh, brought up at home, rather. And, and so, perhaps it's seeking out... Um, the, the guidance counselors at school and, and asking them to check in with one's kids or, um, or, or one's clergy. So I think it's about being in dialogue with whatever support systems are available to, to a family, knowing that none of us have all the answers and some kids are going to connect with, with different kids better, with uh, different adults than, than others. Talk a little bit about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I think I, I, I read her stuff and I'm, I think, aware, perhaps in a way that some other people are not, of what her five stages of grief were actually referring to uh, and, and how they have somehow shown up everywhere. I mean, you, they, they talk about the five stages of grief for somebody going through divorce or somebody in, in this kind of situation, like we're talking about dealing with the death of, of, a, of a loved one. She was really talking about dealing with your own death, wasn't she? She was. She was specifically talking about the dying. And I, I think Kubler-Ross is an important component of this conversation because she you know, she writes her book on death and dying, 1969, and she's responding to the American culture that has really just stopped talking about death. Our funeral rituals have, have become really sterile. Um, this is the time when the hospice you know, movement hadn't existed yet. She would lead to it being propelled uh, forward, but she... She came up with these uh, uh, five characteristics, uh, denial, arguing, bargaining, uh, acceptance, uh, depression, anger, that, that these were components that uh, of somebody's dying process. And as a former hospice chaplain, yes, I saw people who were angry. I saw some people accept it. Um, I saw some people bargain. But no, I, really, did I see anybody experience all five of these things? I think... Uh, she was misunderstood, and she would later um, try to retell her point uh, before dying herself that we, you know, the American culture had misunderstood her. But I think in the, six, the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, we were, we were really grasping for something to give us some direction because we forgot how to talk about death. Um, the challenge with her five stages is it, it set up a mentality um, throughout our culture where we think of grief as being this linear process, that it has some sort of start date. The death happens. We grieve. We work through these, each of these little steps, like each is a little milestone, and then we, we arrive at some sort of conclusion where the dead person can no longer cause us pain or hurt because we've accepted it, and then we just move on and we have our happy little lives thereafter. Right. Sure. But anybody who has experienced grief knows that's not true, that it's this it's this cyclical thing. It's up, down. It, 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 comes, in, uh, it comes in seasons. Um, so, unfortunately, I think our society is, is still holding on to some of those five stages. That it is, it is a, it, you know, its current continues to run through our culture when it comes to conversations on right. death and dying. Now, um, let, me, let me have you take us through a little bit of a, of a scenario here, just because I'm curious about whether the kinds of ways that you would help a child cope with the death depend on, or wh whether they're different, I guess, if it's a sudden death, an unexpected death, as opposed to one where there has been a long illness and, and you've had a chance to right. prepare to the extent that you can prepare. Well, I, I think <clears throat> a lot of people make assumptions about which is worse, and 
is different for every child. So too is you know the nature of the relationship with that parent because some parents aren't great parents, and and you know kids know that. Um, maybe mom or dad were really hard on them, and they're faced with all of these uh, feelings in response to that death, and people telling them how they should feel about that death. And the same thing is true on how how somebody dies. So I think. Uh, oftentimes I hear people say that, well, you know, dad was dying of ALS at home, you got to see him, at least you got to say goodbye. Uh, and so somehow that that was a better death than the dad who was uh, killed in a, in a car accident. Well, you know, that's an assumption. The only way we can know that is what's, what's that child's perspective, because the child who, who watched his dad die slowly over two or three years um, that could have really taken a lot out of his childhood, and, and to and, you know, yeah. dad could have really suffered, and there could have been many hospital visits, and um, it could have been a really draining and taxing time on the whole family. And maybe dad was a great dad, but the disease took such a toll that you know he wasn't the dad that that child knew uh, previous to the illness. So you, I don't think we can make assumptions about what sort of death is better or worse, other than to acknowledge that um, how a death happens, the, the quality of the relationship, the type of support systems that are available before the death and after the death, those are all variables that deeply right. impact a child's grief. Now, we only have just a couple minutes left. I, I want you to talk a little bit about how to assess, as, as an adult, how to assess what a child needs. And I know that the, that's also going to be one of these amorphous kinds of things where it's very difficult, but how do you can you read signals? Is there some way, or or do you just have to ask? Can I do something for you, or do you need an explanation for what this is? Sure. I, I mean, I think in regards to do you need an explanation? Honesty is so important in how we talk about how we talk about death. Um, you know, depending on how deaths happen, sometimes people twist the truth, and that can be confusing for a child because that child will learn the truth eventually, and then they'll. They'll have to regrieve in a new way and, and understanding the details and reprocess what that event was like. Um, you know, I, I think listening is so important, paying attention to a child's body language, um, creating an invitation to, that says, you know, you can share this with me, I'll be okay. And I think the way that, and, and for adults, if we can role model what good grief is. So um, I hear parents talk about them intentionally trying to cry a little bit in front of, you know, when they're having emotions, not to not to run off to the bedroom and close the door. Um, and maybe if they're inconsolable and that would be scary to the child, they might do that. But if, if they're cheery because they had a memory or, or something happened that day, that they share those emotions and they, they role model. Uh, they role model by talking openly about the person who died, that that event is real. It did happen. That person existed. We don't have to sweep them under under the rug. Right. Um, and when you do those things, then you, then you can then you can watch that child and see how they respond to you, and then continue to continue on that conversation. And it takes okay. time. Joseph Primo is the author of "What Do We Tell the Children?" Talking to kids about death and dying. Joseph, thanks for joining us. A, a tough thanks topic, so much for but uh, nice to talk about it. Thank you. Bullying is not kids being kids. It's not about good homes or bad homes. It's not a normal part of growing up. I shouldn't be afraid to get on the to turn on my computer. Message. I walked to my locker. Did you know that a bully will stop his or her behavior in 10 seconds when their peers speak up? Use your voice. Hey, leave him alone. We have the power to stop bullying. Find out more at bullying.org.
Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brutt. The day that you hand a child a set of car keys is a huge day for everybody. For the kid, it's a big boost in independence and ability to get anywhere and hang out with friends and go places and do things. And it's also hopefully a sign of maturity for them. And for the parents, it can be absolutely petrifying, incredibly scary because of exactly the same things. It's independence. The child can go places and do things, and you're going to have a lot less control. Hopefully, it won't be too much of a trauma for the parents because you will have trained your child properly or your child will have had good education on how to drive. Now, here's the problem. Most of the driving literature for parents focuses on how to teach teens how to drive, but it doesn't really explain why teen driving is so dangerous in the first place, and it doesn't give parents a plan to preempt the hazards that teens face. In today's show, we're not going to make the same mistake. Instead, we're going to be talking about the causes and the situations that are most likely to lead to teen crashes, and we're going to talk about how to take specific proactive steps before and each time a teen gets behind the wheel that can counteract them. We'll also get into some hot-button topics like how brain development affects driving, why driver's ed does not produce safe drivers, how and why to prepare a flight plan for each drive before handing over the keys, and how and when to say no. And it all starts right after this. My name's Tyler, and in nine years, I'll be an alcoholic. I'll start drinking in middle school, just at parties. But my parents won't start talking to me about it till high school. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults. The thing is, my parents won't even see it coming. So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Tim Hollister, who's the author of Not So Fast, Parenting Your Teen Through the Dangers of Driving. Tim, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So this is the kind of thing I think a lot of parents maybe who have kids that are younger or older than this particular age group, right around 15 or 16, might be saying, oh, I'm going to listen to something else. I want you to tell me what you just told me just a second ago. Uh, about how you happen to write this book, because I think that right there is going to get enough people to stop what they're doing and pay more attention. Uh, my 17-year-old 17 17-year-old 17 son, Reed, uh, died in a one-car crash in 2006 here in Connecticut. And nine months later, Connecticut suffered back-to-back -back multiple fatality teen driver crashes. And at that point, our governor said enough is enough, and she appointed a task force to overhaul our teen driver laws and appointed me as a parent. And serving on that task force, I got a re-education in the dangers of teen driving. I learned that I really had not been well informed during the 11 months that I supervised my son's driving. And serving on the task force, I came to two conclusions uh, that 
most of the literature that's available to parents does not explain why teen driving is so dangerous and most importantly doesn't explain to parents what they can do day by day before their teens get behind the wheel to prevent the most dangerous situations which are really quite predictable so my focus is not driving and my book is not about driving it's about parenting and so in 2009 I started my blog national blog for parents of teen drivers which is called from reads r-e-i-d-s dad and about two years after that some national traffic safety organizations came to me and said you've got enough blog posts here for a book and that has now been turned into not so fast. Okay. Well, so let's talk a little bit about from the very beginning. I mean, you mentioned something very intriguing about why teen driving is so dangerous in the first place. And I think a lot of people would say, well, because they don't pay attention to things, because their brains haven't developed, or all the kinds of things you hear in the media. But what is really going on there? Why is it so dangerous? Well, uh, the brain development is, is the start, and it's not just that teens don't pay attention. The human brain is not fully developed until we reach about age 22 to 25, and the part of the brain that provides judgment and restraint is the last part that develops. So it is, it is physiologically true and also physiologically unalterable that teens are uh, given to thrill-seeking and they really don't appreciate risk, and that's just something that uh, parents of teen drivers need to understand. You, you're, you're son or daughter can be a straight-A student and a, a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, you can't make their brains develop any, any quicker. It's just a, a physiological fact that needs to be dealt with. But, but there's some other reasons, that, which I'll, I'll run through very quickly. Okay. It takes about three to five years uh, to become a safe driver. So compare that to the 20, 40, 50 hours that we require in most states for a teen to get a license. It's really a drop in the bucket. We're putting people on the road when they have just the barest uh, uh, notion of what it is to, to drive a car, uh, much less safety, uh, safely. Um, third is that the teen new drivers look at the perimeter of the car. They're trying not to hit anything. So what they don't do is they don't look down the road at the developing traffic situation, which is how you avoid a crash. And the last thing is that teens are learning to navigate and to drive at the same time. Think about yourself as, a, as an experienced adult driver. You go to a new place and you rent a car. You're looking up at the street signs. You're trying to figure your way around. You're, try, you're learning to navigate in that place. Well, think about learning to drive and learning yeah. how to get to where you're going at the same time. It's a, it's a very challenging thing. So th there's no shortcuts. It just takes years and years to create a safe driver and well uh, that, that creates kind of a, a chicken and the egg problem and it, it, yes it it's going to take three years but how are we going to get them those three years in a safe way we're not going to wrap the car in bubble wrap or wrap them in bubble wrap i mean how do you well, no, they, how can you, you get them want to encourage uh, lots of experience but the point is don't think that when they get their license when they pass the road test and the state issues them a license that they're a safe teen driver that that's the that's the mindset that I try to encourage parents of teen drivers to adopt. Well, I think in, in California, and I'm sure that this is going on other places, they have a kind of acknowledged what you're talking about by saying that teens at the age of 16, I guess they can't drive with other teens in the car unless they're 18. They can get a license at 15 and a half, but it's, so you're not really allowed to have other passengers, which is, uh, I think, an Correct. interesting and, and thing. And there are other aspects of what is called graduated driver licensing or, or GDL and, and passenger limits is, is part of it, uh, night curfews, uh, minimum training hours, no electronic devices, mandatory seat belts. Those are all part of the, the so-called GDL system, which is designed to prevent teens from 
getting involved in the most dangerous, the statistically most dangerous activities in the first two years, two and a half, three years of driving. So that, that is a, uh, that's a system that is in place in varying degrees around the United States, but it tries to take direct aim at the, uh, the major causes of crashes. What are the, the major things? I'm think, just thinking of texting or talking on the phone or turning around and, and looking at somebody. Uh, what what well, are the other ones? Distraction is a big part of it, but believe it or not, passengers uh, is emerging in a lot of the research as the main culprit uh, because uh, it's very a very uh, clear statistical trend. Each passenger in a teen driver's car increases the risk uh, about two times. And so if you get a... Uh, a teen driver with two, three, four teen passengers in the car. That, that's a, a crash waiting to happen. And uh, it, it ties in with, with another thing that's sort of just below the consciousness level of many uh, parents. When I bring it up, they kind of have an aha moment. And that's the difference between purposeful driving and joyriding. If a teen has a destination and a reason to get there, a consequence for not getting there on time, going to school, sports practice, a job, whatever, they're probably going to drive conservatively and safely. It's the joyriding, multiple teens in a car out for fun. That's where we see the risks, the peer pressure, the misconduct, and the distraction. And that that is a um, that's a situation that parents just need to do everything they can possibly do to avoid. Yeah, well, I guess you have to also throw into the mix the general feeling that teen boys, in particular, but I think teen girls as well, have that they're pretty much immortal. For, Absolutely. for a while. Well, that, that, that's part of the brain development is they don't appreciate the risk. Uh, you know, the, the simple statistic is 85% of teens understand that texting is dangerous, but 77% think, think they can handle the risk. That, that's a good example of them knowing that it's risky but not reacting in, in, the, in the appropriate way to the level of risk. So what every teen driver should have is a 7-year-old sitting in the back seat saying, hey, put that phone away. Which well, is that, exactly that, what my or, or, or conscience, uh, or, but uh, you know that, that brings up the issue of uh, uh, the fact that most passenger laws allow siblings at a much earlier stage uh, in the graduated driver license process than others. But uh, there's no evidence that siblings are more safe as passengers. In fact, there's some evidence that they're more dangerous. And th- there's a great quote that I read: "Do you entrust your most precious cargo to your least experienced driver?" Um, there's been some, just recently in the last two months, some horrific crashes of teens, 16, 17-year-olds driving their younger siblings to school and uh, getting in a crash and killing killing the sibling. Oy. There's kind of an interesting thing, I think, which uh, you, you deal in, with in the book, but I think it's this, this strange contradiction that we look at our children, we say that our children are the most valuable thing, the most important thing in the world to us. But we don't want to spend a lot of money on child care for them. And, at, and I, you know, so yes, kids are valuable to us. They, we, we love them. But you know what? We need them to help out with the chores or go to the store and get groceries or take their younger sibling to school. And so we're going to give them the keys anyway. How do you get parents to, to stop with that completely contradictory idea? Yeah. Well, the, the, perhaps the first rule of parenting a teen driver is don't put your own convenience ahead of the safety of your teen, and that's something that parents do every day. Uh, and, and ferrying siblings to school is probably the best example. You as a parent have been getting up at whatever hour for 15, 16 years, and now suddenly you have a chauffeur in the house that will make that a lot easier. Just because it's convenient and you're going to get another half hour of sleep doesn't mean it's a safe practice. And, and certainly don't think that, uh, oh, I'll, I'll get my teenager some additional practice by letting them drive their siblings to wherever to sports practice in school because 
that's uh, that simply, as you just said, putting your precious cargo into the hands of a very inexperienced driver. So the, you don't put your convenience ahead of your of your team's safety is the is the watchword for parents. Speaking with Tim Hollister, who's the author of Not So Fast, Parenting Your Teen Through the Dangers of Driving, and those dangers include on the cover anyway, control texting, distractions in impaired driving, handle passengers, keys, tickets, and fatigue, set safety rules for every trip, learn when to say no, and much more. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to continue talking with Tim when we get back, and we're going to pick up with some of those ideas I just read about controlling texting and handling passengers. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Tim Hollister, who's the author of Not So Fast, Parenting Your Teen Through the Dangers of Driving. Tim, wanted to get into a little bit. We, we mentioned talking, talk, I'm sorry, taking younger siblings around and passengers, and, and I was talking about the thing in California where you can't have other teenagers in the car until you're about 18 or so. How do you get teens to understand that they can't do the kinds of things that they think they might be able to handle, the texting and the dealing with the, the squabbling in the back seat, or maybe somebody's got their phone out and they're showing the other passengers pictures, and of course you want to turn around and look at those pictures too. How do you begin to explain that they're not indestructible and that these are problems? Well, among the people who try to get the message across to teens, I would generalize and say there are two approaches out there. One is to show them videos uh, with uh, crumpled metal and blood flying everywhere, you know, the, the crash videos. And uh, I, I'm frankly, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a proponent of, or a fan of that. The second approach... Wait, you're, you're not a fan of that? I, I'm, I'm not a fan of that because uh, I think the best, uh, best example I can give you is we pay money to go to the movies to see those kinds of things. That, yeah. I think that's more uh, of interest to them. Wow, that was really cool. Did you see the way the car got mashed up and the bodies went flying everywhere? I just don't think it has the intended effect. But I, what is effective um, is getting teens to hear the stories of people uh, like myself, but there are many, many, there are far too many other parents that can tell stories of the consequences for families and siblings and communities when teen drivers make bad mistakes and, and, and engage in misconduct or, or end up in a crash. Um, the, uh, there, there's a very well-known video uh, put out by AT&T called The Last Text, which features oh, yeah. four families uh, of, uh, of, of teens who were killed uh, when they were texting, and th that's what teens need to hear, is they need to understand the mortality that invo is involved and the human consequences of bad driver decisions. Yeah. I, I just think that's far more effective than in the, the so-called bloody videos. Well, you know, I was thinking about those bloody videos because I remember when I was going through driver's training, or driver's ed, they, they showed us these things from, from the, it was called Red Asphalt, I think was one of them, and it was from the Ohio State Police, and it was these horrible crashes, and, and the narrator sort of saying, well, here's Fred, and here's Fred's head across the street. And, and the, you're right, that those were kind of, ooh, cool, instead of, oh, my God, we shouldn't do that. But those AT&T right. those commercials, wow. Those things, yeah. I, I thought, were absolutely a punch in the guts, and they really needed to be. I mean, abs just really, really powerful stuff, for, at least for me. Now, how, how do teens process that? Because, I mean, that hits me as an adult in a different way, I think. Yeah, I, I, think, they, I think teens, when you, they 
hear these stories are probably confronting their own mortality for the first time in a real way. Uh, here in Connecticut, we have a, a, a group called Mourning Parents Act, Impact, three mothers who lost their sons in, in a one-month period 11 years ago. And they go to high schools, and they stand up on the stage, just them and a microphone, and talk to the teens about what happened to their families after their sons died. And you can have seven, 800 teens in the audience, and you can hear a pin drop, and nobody's texting, everybody's paying attention, and it just, it just, and that in the AT&T video and, and the, uh, the, the longer Werner Herzog video that just came out, I think are the best examples that we have to get teens to understand what they will leave behind if they engage in uh, dangerous driving behavior and they make a big mistake. All right, let's move on to some of the, the practical suggestions that you've got in the book. What, are, what do you mean by act like a, an air traffic controller? A good way for parents to think about uh, teen driving is to uh, treat it like flying. And I actually got an assist on this topic from uh, Deborah Hurstman, the chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board. She actually said that on television a couple of weeks ago. But uh, think of yourself as a parent uh, acting like an air traffic controller is before the teen gets in the car, every time for the first, say, 6, 9, 12 months, what's the destination? What's the route? Is the weather good? Are you rested and ready and stable and ready to undertake this responsibility? What are, you know, what's your plan for passengers? Is your equipment in good shape and so forth? So it's a good, it's a good mindset to keep in mind that you're about to undertake something very dangerous that has no margin for error, like flying, and uh, so act like an air, you, you the parent act like an air traffic controller and uh, exercise that measure of control. The, the car doesn't take off until you give the clearance for the, uh, for the flight. Okay. And is that something that teens will generally go along with? Because I'm, again, kind of getting back to this whole idea about for doing things for the parents' expediency, which is something that we all fall into at some point or other. That, I, I'm, oh, not, I'm not saying that know. any of this is easy. Um, oh, no, I know. I'm just wondering, so how do you present that to the to the teen in a way that they're going to do it? I, well, I guess you say, look, you either do it or you don't get the keys. Exactly. Car keys are the parent, parent's ultimate leverage, and there are certain things that just have to be non-negotiable. Um, I, I am, just changing topic slightly, I am a big proponent of parent-teen driving agreements. There's there's a model agreement in my, in my book and, and many other good examples uh, across the country, but uh, when you when your teen is about to get their license, you sit down with them across the kitchen table in the calm of that setting, and you go over what the rules are. Not 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 ideas or suggestions, but you something you actually write out. And particularly, what if the law is violated? What is the what is the result going to be? I will lose my license for X days or weeks. So you need to set those rules. And make it clear that if there is a violation, it's not going to be a discussion. It's going to be automatic. How do you think money plays into this? And I'm thinking for, for some teenagers, they may not really be too terribly concerned about their own physical health because they're going to live forever, of course, and they can make it through any kind of crashes and what that, you know, it's going to be, it's not going to be a problem. But if you're going to have to pay for your own insurance or you're going to have to pay the deductible should something happen, is that something that hits teens where they live? Every family has to make that decision for themselves, but absolutely, driving is expensive, and that's something that uh, any driver, especially a teen driver, needs to learn uh, early on. Um, you know, it's an interesting statistic that uh, the number of miles driven by teens has dropped fairly precipitously in the last 
four or five years, and people are speculating as to what the reason is for that. Certainly it's because the cost of gasoline uh, has gone up and, and the recession. The teens, uh, fewer teens have had jobs and therefore less disposable income. Uh, so, you know, in, in a sense, the uh, not having the money to drive is a, is a, a throttle, if you will, on, uh, on teen driving. Now, the question is, as the economy improves, does that, does that correct itself? Uh, we don't know. But, but certainly teens need to understand that, uh, that driving is expensive and bad driving can be economically, uh, financially ruinous to a family because if you're under 18 and you uh, cause a lot of damage, your parents are going to be responsible for that. We've been talking about the actual driving part, but there is, or at least when I was doing it, there was driver's ed and driver's training. And so the driver's ed was coursework and learning about how far you should, how far you have to turn your signals on in advance and you know, railroad tracks, what do you do? The, the kinds of things you'd need to pass a written test on something, which was separate from the actual behind the wheel part. And some of that, I'm pretty sure that driver's ed anyway was a requirement in high school. That seems to be gone now. Um, Correct. Uh, most driver's ed is now not conducted in the schools. It's conducted by private commercial driving schools. Uh, the thing about driver's ed is it's, it's sort of a contradiction. It's absolutely essential because teens need to know the rules of the road and they need to know how to operate a vehicle. But back to what we, where we started with parents needing to understand the risks, no parent should think that someone who has graduated from driver's ed is a safe driver because they are nothing more than a beginner with a beginner's knowledge of how to drive and how to handle a car. So they, uh, the, the safe driving only comes a couple years and, and uh, much greater brain development down the road than, uh, uh, than when they graduate from driver's ed. Now, you've got a quick chapter in the book about what schools can do. Tell us about that. Well, obviously, teens uh, spend most of their uh, lives in school, and school parking lots uh, it could be analogized to ground zero for the uh, the passenger problem, that's where the teens pile into the car and go off on on joy rides. Uh, you know, schools uh, the schools have obviously a huge challenge because they have so many different public health issues that they need to deal with. But what I try to encourage schools to do is take some time for teen driving uh, to make things like video contests uh, awareness, show the AT&T video, bring in groups like Impact uh, with parents that can tell the, the stories. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's one among many issues that they need to deal with, but they, they certainly should not neglect it because they, they do have the ability to get the teens in a room and, uh, and uh, feed them the information they need to hear. Tim Hollister is the author of Not So Fast, Parenting Your Teen Through the Dangers of Driving. Tim, is there a website people can go to for more information about this, although the book is quite comprehensive? Yes, uh, the book's website is www.nsf, as in not so fast, nsfteendriving.com. And my blog is www.fromreads.org. Tim Hollister, thanks so much. Great to have you. My pleasure. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. It's time for another Parents at Play segment, and as usual, joined by Sam Fuse, my partner on the Parents at Play newspaper column. And Sam is going to talk to us a little bit about dolls, which I wouldn't have thought would be something, long ago I wouldn't have thought it would be something that dads could possibly be interested in, but it really is something, we'll, we'll talk about that too, it's really more for the whole family. But fire away, Sam, talk about Doc McStuffins. 
Doc McStuffins is really hot right now. Little girls and many boys really love Doc McStuffins. Doc McStuffins is a TV show where the the child pretends to be a doctor and is really involved with her fantasy, and she treats her stuffed toys. It's it's really encouraging children to kind of not only like reach for the stars because she it's a positive role model. She's a a, a good kid. She works hard. She gives positive attitudes and she's kind to her friends and kind to her toys and um it's cute it's just a cute show the kids love the toys the toys talk they're friends with each other they're friends with doc but of course adults can't see them talking well of course not i'm curious why is it mcstuffins is there some it it sounds almost like a a mcdonald's kind of a thing but (laughs) is there some explanation for the name the stuffed animals oh Yes. Oh, that seems simple enough. Okay. So, so there there were a couple of different toy sets that you looked at. There was uh, one that's a house, and there's one that's got a bunch of different uh, of her friends. How did those go together? They don't really go together. They're just several different options that I particularly liked for children that also aren't going to cost you an arm and a leg. Doc McStuffins has a ton of options out right now. Some of the ones that I personally liked the best, um, one of which is the Doc is in clinic, which is, it looks like a dollhouse, um, and you play with it like a dollhouse, but it's got two elements. The top level is her bedroom, which looks just like the bedroom from the show, and the bottom level is her clinic, and it comes with everything that you need. It has stickers, which you decorate the house with on the outside and the inside. It comes with all the furniture, so you don't need to go back out and spend an extra 20 30 more dollars on furniture, bedroom set, etc. It comes with Doc. And it comes with two stuffies, so she can immediately get to work and treat them. Is one of those stuffies able to explain Obamacare to all of us? She's working on that. It's very difficult for stuffed animals to understand. But <laughs> or, or stuffed humans, for that matter. Yeah, no. I'm, I'm not quite clear on it all the way either, but I don't, I don't speak doctor, so I'll, I'll ask her to help me. You said Doc McStuffins is, is incredibly popular now, sort of a, a newish one. And then there's Hello Kitty that you had a chance to, to take a look at. And Hello Kitty has been around forever, but they just don't seem to go away. I have to admit that I am a huge fan of Hello Kitty, even being that I'm not, you know, five or six or seven years old. But I was a child of the 80s, and Hello Kitty became popular in the late 70s and 80s. And um, just a fan, sorry. But Hello Kitty has, like many toys, evolved, and there is a new line coming out. There is a fully articulated Hello Kitty, which has never been made before, so she can move and move her arms, move her legs, move her waist, and there's never been a Hello Kitty that could do that before. Um, Other Hello Kitties that I thought were adorable uh, included the Color Me Plush, which is very inexpensive at only $11. It's cuddly. It's cute. And the bottom is weighted, so it will actually stand up while your child is coloring it. Mm -hmm. It comes with a special marker so that your child can use it and color it either purple with its purple outfit or pink with its pink outfit. Wait, so you're you're drawing right on the doll? Directly on the doll, yeah. Okay. And you can design it yourself, make your own designs, put your name on it, whatever you want. My son made it very goth. Um, I lacked a little girl to design for me that week, so he was my guinea pig. Um, However, if you draw very, very darkly in the same spot over and over, it will not wash out completely. It will fade. It will not wash out. If you draw on it normally, 
it'll wash right out in the washing machine. You can't put it in the dryer, however. Now, what if you run out of, of ink or whatever it is in, that's in those markers? Can you get replacements? Um, no, I don't think you can get replacements. I did look online. I actually did submit the question. I haven't heard back yet. But um, it, it hasn't run out. It hasn't dried out, although I, I'm assuming if a child leaves the marker open, like with any other marker, it will dry out. So you had one more, another, I have to say, another doll that I had never heard of, Pinky Cooper. What's with her Pinky Cooper is one of my favorite dolls that I've seen not only this year but in a really long time. I think she's really innovative. She's really fun. And as far as dolls go, she's like a classy doll. Um, Pinky Cooper is a dog and a doll. And And most little girls. She kind of looks like that. She's got a, like a. A dog, yeah, but like with, a puppy face. with beautiful clothes, yeah. Yes, with beautiful clothes, and that's exactly what she is. She's a fashionista who likes to travel. So she's she's a puppy doll, um, but she's got, like, a human body, and she still has, like, long-flowing hair slash ears. Um, they have a full fashion line, so if your daughter is into fashion, likes to have uh, different clothes on her dolls, maybe likes to have, like, the closet with everything organized, she can totally do this with Pinky Cooper. Pinky Cooper has friends. She also has pets. So Pinky Cooper has a pet puppy, and all her friends also have pet puppies. The puppies have accessories. The dolls have accessories. And something I loved, loved, loved about this line, the doll isn't trashy. So many dolls right now have the short skirts, the high-cut boots. Some of them even have thongs on them, and that just really disturbs me on a deep level. No, me this too. Doll, I, I really appreciated that that actually was, I mean, it's not like Amish or somebody, right. something incredibly conservative, but it, it's it's reasonable. She's very trendy. Like, if you look at the clothes she's wearing, they're very trendy as to what children and, and girls are wearing now, even what women are wearing now, without looking trashy. Yep. And that's, and again, with the traveling, it encourages learning about different cultures, fashion in different cultures. It encourages children's imagination. Um, even the puppies, the, the pets are fashion conscious. You can change their little ears um, hmm. with other pets, and they come with a second set as well. And they're really inexpensive. All the dolls retail from $10 to $20. You can read our full reviews of the dolls that Sam just talked about, or you can get reviews of all sorts of other stuff that we've done in our column, Parents at Play. And you can get that at parentsatplay.com. For Samantha Fuse, I'm Armin Brott. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.